welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Arne Dalhaug and Wolfgang Sporer, both of whom I recently interviewed independently about the crisis in Ukraine. I will link both episodes in the show notes, which include more extensive bios for both of my guests. Suffice to say that Arne is a retired three-star Norwegian army officer who also served as a senior officer in NATO and more recently as a senior leader at the OSC in Ukraine. Wolfgang is currently an adjunct professor at the Hertie School in Berlin and was recently the head of the Human Dimension Department of the OSC in Ukraine, where he led the civilian aspects of conflict management and facilitated and promoted dialogue between the opposing sides. Anyone that has listened to our previous discussions knows how intimately familiar both of these gentlemen are with the depths and complexity of the current situation. They join me today to discuss the invasion, the current crisis, and possible future outcomes. Arne and Wolfgang, thank you both for joining me uh, once again on the Voices of War. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, gentlemen, since we uh, spoke last time, which was only a few uh, weeks ago, uh, Putin made his move and invaded Ukraine nearly four days ago now. Uh, Up until the invasion, there was uh, still a lot of hope that a peaceful resolution might be possible. What do you think tipped the scales? In other words, why did Putin ultimately decide to pull the trigger, so to speak? Maybe we can start with, uh, uh, Arne, you look like you're about to start talking, so we'll start with you. First of all, let me admit that um, what I've written about uh, the war and what could happen, I've mostly been, uh, been correct about. Of course, uh, I underestimated definitely uh, Putin's willingness for to be more reckless than I expected. No doubt about that. And uh, I'm still quite puzzled that uh, at the end of the day, he chose to, to uh, press the red button, actually. Mm. And uh, of course, the, the big question is, was it the plan all the time? I mean, diplomacy, everything was just a smokescreen or maybe it could have taken a different uh, different course. Mm. Of course, we don't, don't know that uh, for sure. But uh, I'm quite uh, surprised to learn that he actually chose this, uh, this way forward mm. because everything that uh, I have predicted in my writings about what could be the possible consequences, they are very obvious already and probably stronger than even I, I expected. Mm. So we can discuss uh, a few things about these issues, but I I think it's fair to say that Putin has underestimated three uh, very important factors, actually. And and the first one is how united the West has been. And of course, Putin has made them even more uh, more united. Mm. Uh, The second factor, I think, is he has underestimated the willingness and the hardness of the resistance from uh, from the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have been doing, I mean, magnificently well 
against uh, superior forces. And we can discuss that also from uh, a military point of view. And, uh, and the third thing I think that is important and also Putin underestimated is how unpopular the war is in Russia. And that is before all the body bags are coming back. So uh, in my first article in already in November, I said this has a potential if he should opt for war. I mean, it could actually, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, it's, uh, actually challenge the regime itself at the end mm, of the day. Mm, mm. I mean, that possibility is is present. Yeah, I leave it there. absolutely. Wolfgang, what, what, what's your thoughts? Um, well, I, I largely agree with many things that, that Arne said now. Uh, but just a couple of points to add. add. There seem to be more and more indications now, um, some intercepted communications between uh, Kadyrov of Chechnya and, uh, and, and with the Russian authorities, that it had actually been decided up to like one week before it actually, uh, one week before it actually happened. Um, one has to be extremely careful with this information because the fog of war is 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 there and there is so much disinformation there. But um, what I read, this could very well have been uh, very well have been the case. Hmm. And when you look back for one week, um, it also kind of somehow falls into place with, you know, the recognition with the first steps to prepare hmm. to recognize the, uh, the, the Donbass regimes, this fake uh, security council meeting which was terrible um, uh, followed by you know military assistance etc etc so it appears from on the one hand some in some alleged intelligence i would call it hmm. and on the other hand from the uh, from the uh, things that happened on the ground that indeed the decision was taken a week, um, a week, a week before uh, this, um, mm. this before it actually happened. Um, again, I'm saying this with 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 care, but when you look at actually what's what's out there, that appears not improbable. Mm. The second thing, why why was that decision taken? I mean. Uh, when you look at Putin's, and I must say, uh, increasingly rambling and horrible and aggressive pronouncements, um, you will first uh, hear that it's actually about the West, uh, that it's about the West not providing security guarantees. Then it's about, you know, the fate of the Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. Um, most recently, it's about the denazification of the um, Ukrainian regime, which I interpret as a modern way to say regime change. Um, and finally, uh, it's all underpinned also sometimes by the argumentation that Ukraine actually is not, is not really a country that's real. Ukraine is kind of a part of Russia. And that, and that, that's kind of the reason for you know much of the uh, much of the action. So we don't really know what was even his, let's say, his purported reason for this attack. He has been pointing in all kinds of different directions. Um, at the end of the day, I do believe that um, that Putin finds it extremely difficult or impossible to work with the Zelensky regime. Zelensky has many things he does not have. He has a, he's a politician with a completely different style, with a completely different outlook 
uh, on the world with, um, and let us not forget about that, that has never been really uh, talked about much. Zelensky has more social media followers and more fans in Russia than Putin himself. Oh, okay, wow. as a comedian, as an actor. But Zelensky is a popular figure mm. inside Russia. We That's should influence. not forget that. Mm. Um, so he probably thought, with this guy, I cannot work, and uh, it's impossible to have this guy around. We must get rid of this guy. Um, so that's probably uh, one. That's probably one thing. And I agree very much with Arne on one aspect that he mentioned. That's the unpopularity of the um, of the conflict in Russia. And there, what we do see in Russia is a really growing, let's say, information gap uh, between the people who do nothing except watch TV, rural regions, um, also above a certain age who don't use internet, and the younger population who actually does use internet, uh, with whom actually Zelensky's address, address to the Ukrainian people is going, uh, to the Russian people, I'm mm. sorry. Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. spoke directly to yeah. the Russian people. Yeah, in Russian. Amongst yeah. young urban yeah. internet uh, users, this is becoming uh, uh, viral. In, in mm. inside Russia. That's really interesting because I think one of the demographic uh, uh, facts about Russia is that unlike much of the rest of the world, it doesn't have uh, an aging population at the moment. Uh, it's actually quite uh, got a rather large young population from the 17 to 25, which I think was why Putin changed the compulsory military age as well to match, giving him the next 15 years quite a big bulge of a young population of particularly young men that he could send to the army. So this potentially, by what you're saying, is that could ultimately prove his undoing uh, by the very fact that these young people are very socially connected um, and, of course, yeah. you know, spoken to directly in their own language uh, by yeah. the you know, president of the, of, of, of the country that they've just invaded. I mean, that's, a, that, that's an incredible insight. Uh, indeed, and and what what uh, the last point I would like to make in terms of the Russian population, mm. um, I just read a tweet by a um, by a by somebody of the Russian analyst community mm. who is also mm. a friend of mine, who never was anti-Putin. I mean, you cannot be a very you know uh, let's say high-level analyst who speaks on TV and who speaks everywhere and be like ra radically anti-Putin. He was kind of, you know, flowing on the waves of what you need to do, works in Carnegie, mm. Moscow, mm. to not, you know, drop out of the, let's say, he was never a fan of Putin, but he was never, you know. Yeah. And he now said, he now basically has positioned himself completely against Putin. Mm. And he says that many people in Russia, in the analyst community, in the in the intelligentsia, are saying they are really in a in a in a pickle, as they say, what can, we cannot wish our own army defeat in the field, but we can also not wish for our own country for destruction in the future. So we are really uh, in in a bind of what to wish for in this conflict. Mm. So this aspect that Arne has made, I think we're going to see uh, more of that, and that's going to intensify, but uh, speak about this maybe oh. later.
Yeah, I don't know. You were nodding uh, for that for most of that. Did you want to add something else uh, uh, to that? No, 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 not really. I mean, uh, I think what Wolfgang said is is re really interesting, and uh, it reinforces my impression that uh, the importance of all this new social media is is playing out in a way that we probably haven't uh, seen before. I mean, we mm. touched upon it in a couple of minutes uh, before you joined us, Wolfgang, but. Um, I, th I think that's an uh, interesting topic to, uh, to uh, explore uh, a little further. Well, well, let's talk about that now because that that's kind of uh, uh, quite relevant. Um, well, particularly given that you know we're we're talking over Zoom, you know, across you know, you know I, I, I'm in the Gold Coast in Australia. Uh, Adne, you're in Oslo, uh, and Wolfgang, you're in Brussels. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a that in itself is uh, is rather unique for the modern uh, commentary of, uh, of of battlefields. But certainly, you know, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, have been very, very prominent and active, and to the point where, uh, as you and I talked briefly, Arne, you know, th there are military experts from around the world giving tips on urban warfare uh, to people in Kiev. You know how to resist, uh, you know, <laughs> armored uh, armored penetration uh, into a city. You know where to target tanks with Molotov cocktails. You know where to throw blankets to uh, prevent their, uh, you know, the the equipment uh, working and, and and impeding vision, etc. Or how to make uh, uh, you know, chicanes on the streets, th these kinds of things. I mean, surely that's uh, that's something very new. Uh, but it also, it, as it seems, it's really brought the war into the civilian domain, probably more so than previously. Civilians are active participants. Uh, they are no longer passive victims of war. Uh, or at least that's my impression, right? And that's what we're seeing in the media as well. The Russian, the Ukrainians are, are kind of lining up en masse to pick up arms and defend uh, the country. What, what are your thoughts on, on the influence of, of, of social media in this regard? Well, uh, if I may start on that, I mean, the influence of social media is, is absolutely gigantic. Uh, it, it, forms, uh, it forms opinions, it forms um, narratives. It's used as a hybrid weapon on all sides. Um, if I may tell a little anecdote that I have heard actually from two sides, I cannot vouch if that anecdote is absolutely true, but I, it, 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 appears, it appears true from me knowing mm. Ukraine and Russia, it could be true. Um, it is that um, Ukraine is using Tinder. Tinder, it's a dating app, mm. a matchmaking app to extract, um, to extract the information from Russian invading soldiers. Because Russian invading soldiers are actually looking for, you know, partners, well, mm. Tinder matches in their immediate environment where they are, like, on the invasion. Mm. And then this, this, this fake profile of a good-looking woman uh, would actually start a conversation with that Russian soldier on Tinder while it's actually a Ukrainian intelligence officer trying to extract uh, information about positions, about movements, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. so not only you you well you uh, you find this outstanding, and I find it outstanding as well. Hmm. Along the fact that a Russian soldier would go matching in Tinder with the people that he is about to invade. Invade, uh, yeah. So a couple it's, of questions uh, uh, strike me as uh, yeah, that's one, <laughs> that's one question. But also, yeah. I thought it was yeah. made quite public that. Uh, Russian soldiers were not allowed to have any phones on them. 
so that also strikes me as a, I mean, of course, soldiers being soldiers and, <laughs> you know, Arne will laugh you undoubtedly, uh, you know, surely some have smuggled their phones in, but that's, uh, that, that's, uh, that's next level uh, <laughs> intelligence collection. It is, it, it is an incredible, incredible story. Wow. Um, uh, and even if it's not true, which I don't exclude, it's too good not to be told. Exactly. So I don't vouch for it, but I've read it on numerous occasions and somebody told me about it. I'll just jump in there before Arne jumps in as well. I mean, I think that's also a really interesting point. It really doesn't matter if it's true or not, because if it's 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 creating sufficient humor, rapport, liking of the Ukrainian people from the rest of the world, same as the uh, the ghost of Kiev, right? We don't know if that pilot is real or not. It doesn't matter. It, they, you know, people need heroes. Uh, and these are, this is the mythology that people are embracing. It's giving them hope. Whether it's real or not, almost doesn't matter, right? I'm sorry, Anna, you, uh, I think I cut you off. You're about to jump in. Well, uh, I really like the, the Tinder story. And uh, it, could, it could very well be true. And, and, of course, what one might add is that it's not the first time that good-looking women are playing a role during uh, conflicts and war. But, of yeah. course, not Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's so, but um, let, 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 let's return a little because um, uh, fr- from the very beginning of uh, this buildup of, of Russian forces, I mean, uh, for the first time, uh, we, we should remember that um, this is the first really big war that's played out, actually, not only in Europe, but, uh, but also in, in, in the world after open source intelligence has established itself as a factor. And, uh, and uh, it started to work immediately because um, you have investigative journalists like in Bellingcat, you know, and uh, you have um, all uh, the commercial satellites, which actually also the SS, SMM used when Wolfgang and I were around in, uh, in Luhansk. So, uh, so, uh, well, and I also think that the Biden administration played very well with the intelligence, and it made it exceptionally difficult for uh, for the Russia to come up with some false narrative about what was going on, and uh, they released information from uh, from the U.S., which were very accurate. Uh, really. But what is even more important is that this could be confirmed from open sources, which, of course, added credibility to what the uh, the administration said. So the possibility to spin wild stories about what was going on coming from, from the Russian side was basically, it was not possible. Hmm. And uh, also then, in addition, comes um, the wild world as... Um, as I call it, and of course, people are connected in uh, in very different uh, ways, and uh, we we can uh, we can actually see the war playing out on diff uh, on uh, different social media in a way we really haven't been able to see before, because this is the first time we have a conflict uh, in a uh, I mean a country under attack where you have complete access to to internet. And also, you have free media, and I mean, there's no restrictions. I mean, they can put out whatever they like. And uh, all the videos I've seen this morning are mm-hmm. quite devastating, seen from uh, from the Russian point of view. And of course, this is influencing and hardening the positions in Europe. Mm-hmm. Because 
the population in Europe uh, in the free world is watching what's going on. And that will for sure give uh, the politicians leverage when they take the next turn on what to do with sanctions on Russia. Mm. So this is going on on, uh, on many different levels, and we can see it play out. And uh, mm. whatever what, uh, Wolfgang said about the social media, for sure, I do agree with. I think we are touching upon uh, something that is exceptionally important and mm. something that I've just seen the beginning. Yeah, and, and I guess in this war, it's not the kind of CNN factor, right? It's now the social media factor. And we're also seeing, you know, organizations, companies, you know, YouTube, Facebook, uh, who are now stopping uh, monetization of, say, RT, Russia Russia Today uh, channels. Uh, Elon Musk, I mean, I'm sure you've both seen that, has just, uh, you know, responded to a tweet of the vice president uh, of Ukraine uh, and he's made satellites available uh, to give redundancy to the internet in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, this is this is new. This is we're now seeing the world and world civilians, not institutions, but organizations, civil society, and civilians actively participating <laughs> in the resistance um, to this war. I think that's a that's a that's a rather unique, uh, yeah, unique change. Yeah, Wolfgang, please. Um, if I may add one thing to the social media aspect here, I, I think which is extremely important, is that this social media angle with Twitter, with Facebook, with all the app, uh, TikTok, I mean, let's mm. not underestimate Reddit, uh, mm. where people really get a lot of information, actively put spokes in the wheels of government disinformation. Mm. Because uh, some of our, our uh, listeners will not know what Russian uh, TV is at the moment putting out about the war. There is no mention of attacks on Kiev. There is no mention of trying to, you know, assassinate Zelensky or something like that. In the Russian media, this is a war. A, no, it's not a war. It's a special military operation to protect the Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. Mm. That's what it is. Mm. No uh, talk about the three-pronged attack from the south, from the north, and from the east. Mm. Zero. Mm. And this is because the Russian people, large parts of the Russian people, would simply, in my view, be extremely discontent Mm. If Russia would be attacking what they consider to be really considered to be their brotherly people, mm. I'm not sure this is reciprocated so much from the Ukrainian side, but the mm. feelings from the Russian side and the average population are are real in this regard. Mm. Mm. So, what the Russian military, what Putin is doing at the moment, he has to lie about it in his own media in order to be able to uh, continue, and that is being undermined by the social media, by yeah. young people showing on their phone videos to their parents mm. who are only watching, you know, Rasia Dvace Cetiri and Pervi Canal. So, um, yes, and that's another aspect that is extremely important uh, about social media in this in this conflict. That's that's uh, that's really interesting, and I think the kind of information war piece. I think Zelensky, as you, uh, it was interesting that you, that he's more popular than uh, Putin, uh, but I think we also have to give him credit. I mean, he's and I'll be keen to hear your thoughts, but he's really come through in this as as a true leader. I mean, he was initially some had doubts about him being a comedian, uh, you know, that he was never really meant for this position, despite be, having acted it in a in a popular TV series, uh, that it was all a bit of a joke. 
but he's really, in my view at least, and certainly in the view of many others, I'm, I'm certainly not unique in this view, but he's really come through as, as a standout leader, uh, galvanising uh, his people, being out there on a daily basis, being seen uh, more so than Putin, certainly. Now, what are your thoughts on that and, and that kind of information campaign that he's, uh, that he's leading? Well, I mean, I can brief, briefly touch upon that. Uh, I, I must admit that uh, I've never been that much impressed by uh, Zelensky before now. And uh, also, uh, the weeks and months leading up to uh, to uh, the war, I was thinking that his performance was pretty much mediocre, to to be honest. But uh, but now, I mean, uh, he, he comes across as as a statesman in in this absolutely serious uh, situation of Ukraine un- under attack, and I think he has performed marvelously. I mean. Whatever happens, I mean, he will go down in history as mm. one of the big ones. Mm. Whatever happens from now on, actually. So I think he has done marvelous well so far. Yeah. I think uh, Zelensky is doing one thing extremely well that he has always done extremely well, and that is to communicate with his people. He was not he was not elected with 72% over an incumbent president for no reason. Uh, when you looked at Zelensky's TV appearances, at his speeches, at the videos he produced, when he was communicating with his own people, it was always gen- uh, genuine with some humor, uh, with a sense of gravitas, just, just absolutely perfectly. Um, he may not have been as good in other things of the daily management of the state, but fortunately for Ukraine and fortunately to him, for him, his ability to really communicate extremely effectively, on the one hand, with his own people, but on the other hand, also with um, with global leaders. Mm. I mean, his speech at the Munich Security Conference, mm. I'm not sure you have seen it, yeah, yeah. was one of the most yeah, impressive yeah. parts of high-level political communication that I've ever seen. Yeah. So his ability, his genius in communication really comes in, is really now, you know, at the height of, of the demand. Yeah. So this is this is what I think. As for me, that he's communicating well is not a surprise for me at all. Yeah, and it just shows the importance of communication in the leadership piece. I mean, we we can never underestimate it, and I think that's obviously where Putin's losing uh, as well. I mean, his his style of communication, uh, where he embarrasses some of his uh, key leaders uh, rather than empowers uh, empowers them. I think that works uh, to his favor. But let's now get to uh, to to the, I guess the current situation. And 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 Adnan, maybe I'll start with you here because this is really your forte. What the hell happened with the myth of the Russian? military might. Uh, we can't skip that question because we've, you know, the world has lived under the shadow in one way or another, or another, at least of the myth of Putin's army and the Red Army and, you know, the military might. Uh, but they have, to, to say that they have been embarrassed would probably be an understatement. Uh, but uh, so far, at least, uh, knock on wood, they have uh, really not uh, not performed to what one would expect uh, of uh, or had expected of Russia. What, what's your thoughts? Well, ba- basically, the performance of the Russian military is not not a big surprise to me, mm-hmm. because 
being a military over many years and having watched uh, the, the Russian military, they do have some strength and they do have a lot of weaknesses. I could add that it goes for the Chinese military, but that would make the podcast uh, length of about a week. But, uh, <laughs> but for sure, I mean, <laughs> that, 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 that's nothing new. And I mean, it's, it's typical that some of the Russian soldiers that are taken prisoners, they don't even know why they are there. I mean, they think they are on an exercise. And I mean, that's, that's the, the same kind of society we see. Because the truth is never communicated to uh, to people. I mean, there is always. I mean, George Cannon wrote about this back in uh, in 1948. He said that in Russia, the truth really doesn't exist. I mean, whatever happened in the past is remolded, and it's remolded in such a way that it fits the present. And if there is a need, the past will again be remolded to what is needed. So there is no truth is not a constant, and uh, and it's the same uh, same we can see also going on here. I mean, the strong part of the Russian military is the firepower. Uh, that comes from everything from cruise missiles, aircraft to uh, down to to artillery. That that that's the strong arm. A lot lot of brutal firepower, but of course now that the Russians have to uh, to improvise what is going on uh, during the fighting. And uh, I've been quite surprised that they picked uh, urban fighting this early because the Russian army is not at all trained in, uh, in urban fighting. One could say that the Ukrainian is not either. But if you are defending, you always have a big advantage uh, in urban areas. Mm. And of course, as Wolfgang alluded to, people are... Uh, posting on the video on the internet how to make uh, Molotov cocktails, how to defend against the armored vehicles in urbanized terrain, and so on and so on. And of course, going into urban warfare voluntarily, that, that's quite a risk. Mm. And uh, obviously, the Russian uh, army has suffered quite heavy casualties in this area. And if it wasn't for the fact that they have air superiority, I think that the Ukrainians could actually be taking the offense mm. uh, against them in uh, in these areas. And I think the Ukrainians have uh, planned so far the defense of Kiev very well. Uh, Kiev seems to be well defended. They have an open area to the west, to the southwest. And uh, the Russian uh, trying to encircle the city has not been successful at all. So for the time being, I think that this is going much better than I expected for the Ukrainians. Mm. We also need to remember that the Russians so far have not committed all their forces. They do have a lot more forces to commit, and they do have a lot more firepower. Mm. But of course, as the war drags on, things are getting more difficult. You need to improvise. There are no plans that you can follow, and so on. And the Russians are not good at improvising. Mm. They are that, I mean, running forward with a lot of uh, firepower behind them, and it doesn't always work. Uh, so uh, also we should remember, I mean, if you take the map of Ukraine and you look at the Russian, where the Russian forces are now, I mean, be, be aware that they are just in some very, very tiny parts of Ukraine. Mm. Mm. 
mm. on, on the big like you, Ukraine is an enormous country. And for the time being, they are just present in very, very small percentage of the total of Ukraine. You can get the impression that the war is going on everywhere. But mm. it isn't. It's uh, in the south. It's in uh, the areas where Volkan and I spent some time together in uh, the Donbass. And it's up in the northern area around Kiev and to the east of Kiev. But mm. the areas on a map that is colored red are actually quite small. Mm. Uh, that also points to the problem it will be to occupy and pacify Ukraine. Even if you should change the regime in Kiev, I mean, how do you want that regime to govern beyond the reach of uh, Russian mm. bayonet, mm. beyond the zones that are occupied by Russia? Mm. So uh, I, I will I will stop there. I'm sure that um, Wolfgang also has uh, some some use on that. Yeah, yeah. Please jump in, Wolfgang. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I want to kind of. Um, kind of uh, come back to something that Arne said before, and this is a number of Russian miscalculations. I think you, you said you used that word, and I will add to, uh, to this. Um, <clears throat> as it appears, the Russian initial plan, initial assault plan, was uh, designed in a way to basically decapitate Ukraine within one or two days mm. um, to, to um, achieve a very quick victory um, over Kiev to uh, basically topple the topple the the, the the president and therefore kind of be in the driving seat of whatever whatever happens next. The plan was also, it appears, uh, because it's the only chance to do this in any way, to minimize uh, civilian casualties, mm. not to have so-called a total war, but rather like an extremely strong and fast blitzkrieg. Mm. Uh, against the capital. I think we can already say that this plan has failed. Mm. This initial plan has already failed. I think we, we there is no more question to be asked. And of course, this is, um, on the one hand, um, something to... Uh, something hopeful for the Ukrainian side, but let us not forget that it is also something that could result in a very large um, deterioration, particularly for civilians on the ground, mm. as the Russian Federation may well um, depart from the strategy to minimize civilian casualties or to minimize casualties as such, um, as much as possible, and go to a strategy, go, let's switch to a tactic of all out uh, total war, whatever it takes to achieve, to achieve the uh, goal. Mm. So I think we need to be very circumspect here, um, because I believe after this first phase has not gone in the way um, how uh, how Russia probably wanted it. Um, I, very pessimistically, I can say I think we have worse days. We may have worse days to uh, we may have worse days ahead of us in terms of what happens with um, the civilian population, uh, civilian infrastructure, uh, building civilian buildings, etc. Uh, in in the next days. So that mm. that as a, that as yeah. a caveat. And of course, given what we know of Putin so far, that uh, he's been uh, very hard-headed about pursuing his end states, yeah. this would surely come as a really big shock. Well, I'm sure he's 
very angry about what's happening, but also that's very dangerous because he needs to prove a point. Uh, a, a loss, a loss would be rather embarrassing for him. Yes, j- j- jump in on it, please. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> let let me just follow up. And uh, I agree one hundred percent of what's going here. And I also basically alluded to this. I said mm-hmm. the the Russian firepower in all aspects yeah. so far has not been brought into into play. Uh, and uh, and uh, I also uh, tweeted just a couple of days ago that I mean we should remember the first and second Chechen war what Grosny looked uh, looked mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course uh, I think that the, the the Russian infantry is not trained and in a position to uh, to pursue urban warfare in a professional way. Mm-hmm. I mean everything points in that direction. And uh, and and uh, and that means uh, firepower will be the, the leverage seen from the Russian side, mm. and that plays into what Wolfgang said. That's going to be some horrible days ahead, also for also for the Ukrainian civilians if that uh, that plays out. Plays of out. course, I mean if this is playing out for days and weeks to come. I mean, what would be the reaction to uh, to this from the rest of the world? And Putin also has to take this into consideration. I mean, what I uh, alluded to a few minutes ago, uh, all these videos are really hardening the positions in the West and shaping the negative impression of uh, of Russia and uh, and Putin's regime among uh, people in uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine. I mean. Germany has decided to send weapons yeah. to Europe. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. What, what, yeah. what a change yeah. that is. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not talking about the UK. I'm, we are talking about mm. uh, SPD uh, Chancellor in Germany mm. doing this. I mean, mm. it was unthinkable a few days ago. Yeah. So, war has this ability to make possible things that were not possible before. Mm. And that's very important to, to remember. If you go back to, to, to 9-11, as if I had said that time that uh, before Christmas this year, Norwegian forces will be fighting in the mountains in Afghanistan, I would have been looked upon as mm. a lunatic. Mm. And a few days later, it was almost obvious that we couldn't avoid that happening. So I also wrote this morning, actually, about the, the history shows that wars are so unpredictable. They will always take you to places you never expected to end up. And now Putin is walking down that road. He's taking the rest of the world with him in, of course, in many different ways. But you you cannot go back. You are on the road to somewhere. Yeah. And it's up in places you never wanted to be. That's a, the, the, I'm really glad you brought in Germany because I was, uh, I've had that as uh, some notes as well because that was uh, the, the kind of shift in German foreign policy towards <clears throat> Russia is vastly different. I mean, from sending, you know, what was it, 5,000 helmets to now sending stingers and uh, uh, some real hardware to, to help in the fight. Uh, but also we've seen, uh, and this is just over the weekend, right? So this is, I mean, it's, it's Sunday morning for you, Sunday evening for me. Uh, it's only been the last kind of 48 hours, uh, but we've seen the Russian uh, stock market fall by 40% even on Friday. Uh, now the sanctions have really tightened up. We've seen the agreements by even countries like Germany on the exclusion of a number of Russian banks from the Swiss uh, SWIFT uh, financial system, which of course is going to 
have a huge impact not only on Russia but of course on on, on Europe uh, because transactions for you know the gas that there's so much need are settled using SWIFT. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because that obviously that, that's a that's a big shift, uh, and of course gas uh, and Nord Stream to uh, the kind of entire energy sector are, are, are a hugely important part. And you spoke mm-hmm. about this at length, Wolfgang. So maybe maybe we'll start with yeah. you. But now, what what do you think is the is the uh, uh, at play here, and what is the potential cost uh, uh, that we can expect? Yeah, it, it just. Um one sentence before I start mm. on the energy, and that's on yeah, this please. beautiful quote by Arnett that war makes it possible uh, to go. Basically, war makes it possible for things to happen that you never thought would be possible before. Mm. And I contend, and he said, "You're always on a road to somewhere. Um, you maybe you don't know yet, but you're on the road to somewhere." I would contend that Mr. Putin is on the road to his own downfall with this war. Mm. And that's particularly when, uh, if and when uh, a a larger assault on Kiev happens, uh, let us not forget that Kiev is the city which Russians, as well as Ukrainians, rightly so, both of them, regard as the founding city of their own mythical statehood, where there are unbelievable amount of, of, you know, uh, uh, family relations here and there. Um, so if, if, and I really hope this won't happen, larger urban fighting, Grozny style breaks out in Kiev, I think this may have completely un, unforeseen consequences, mm. also including mm. for Mr. Putin himself. But now to the, mm. to the energy question. Um, one has to look into this with, I mean, there is one key question. The key question is, can Europe and Germany continue to pay for the gas that it receives from Russia? I haven't looked into the, I think nobody really has looked into the detail of the SWIFT sanctions. But um, what I have heard also by President von der Leyen is that not all Russian banks and all companies are uh, actually affected by that. And I know that uh, Germany up to yesterday were working very hard in a way with they said they have to design swift sanctions so that the right ones are hit, which you can translate, we have to design swift sanctions um, that are the right ones so that we can still pay for our gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that and I think if if that um and they may have succeeded with that. So that in the short run may not be, you know, the 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 the, the dreaded problem that you know the day after tomorrow uh, the gas will will it's stop off. flowing. I don't think that that's the case. Um, now on Nord Stream two, um, it, it's actually um, there are a couple of aspects that need to be added that are usually not in the media. Uh, aspect number one. Um, Nord Stream 2 has not been cancelled. It has been suspended. Yeah, suspended. That means, um, so no decision for the time being. No no positive decision for the time being. Now, one needs to know, to put this into context, is that the decision by the German authority that would have uh, decided on Nord Stream 2 would have been um, would have given the last legal opinion, the Bundesnetzagentur. Mm-hmm. This decision would not have been there anyway, likely before July, end of June, July. So, in the very short term, this decision on Nord Stream means nothing. It's mm-hmm. a political statement, but in reality, it has no 
it has no it has no real meaning. Right. Now, let us also not forget this North Stream decision was taken before the uh, all-out assault on yeah. with the all-out assault. So while I would have believed that after that decision, if you know Russia would have stayed in the Donbass or would have continued some cyber, what President Biden so so historically called a minor incursion, it would have been possible for uh, Germany to go back in the summer once things have calmed down, say, yes, well, it's needed, etc. I am not sure that after this development, with a full-out assault on Ukraine, um, it is still possible to go back on the on the um, on the Nord Stream pipeline, and this mm. pipeline will actually be, you know, it doesn't need to be constructed anymore. It is constructed, will actually be commissioned, and will actually transport gas by, by the time being. Um, nevertheless, what is not impossible, what is still not impossible, even uh, given the assault, and here I want to look a little bit in the future and also topics beyond energy. Every war at some point has to end with diplomacy, with some kind of diplomacy. So um, while we're not seeing much of that now, um, at some point we are going to see some kind of diplomacy that will end that will end uh, that will end the fighting for better or for worse in this or the other way. Um, and here I say to have a tool like Nord Stream 2 in our toolbox in the context of such a potentially uh, potential diplomatic solution is not bad for the West. It's not a bad thing for the West. So I think the German decision was uh, came at the right time. Um, it doesn't mean anything for now, for, for immediate gas deliveries. Uh, and it adds a it adds an arrow to our uh, to our arsenal, mm. our being the West. I don't yeah. associate personally, but to the Western to the Western uh, to the Western arsenal. So that's what I believe, and I think it's good that that Germany has done that. Mm. But mm. I also do not think it's off the table for good. Yeah. Uh, Arne, your thoughts? I saw you making some, taking some notes. Uh, any well, thoughts? well, well. I mean, I, I basically agree with uh, with what um, Wolfgang said about this. I mean, uh, it was back in the seventies, having um, written a book called "That Every War Must End," and uh, of course, based upon history, every war ends. Uh, at least, uh, as Morgenthau said, that battle and uh, wars come to an end, but the political competition will continue. Mm. So, uh, so uh, I um, I will agree to that, uh, of course. The question is what will happen in uh, the weeks, months, and uh, and maybe years ahead uh, before that happens. And uh, it's kind of difficult to predict right now, but um, uh, it seems to be hard to think that Putin will be able to End this war on favorable terms for uh, for for Russia. It's mm. uh, it's going to to be uh, exceptionally difficult. And uh, I agree with uh, with what Wolfgang said. I mean, it could be on this road to uh, to the dead end for uh, for the long regime. And uh, and this possibility, I think, 
it's been there all the time. And uh, I've written about that and also said several times in lectures that I'm, I was pretty sure that Putin was aware of this, this possibility mm. that war could actually turn out to threaten, threaten the regime. And I think uh, the potential now is more visible than, uh, than it was before this all-out uh, assault. Yeah. I would also say that something that could threaten even the regime in Beijing was a failed attack on, uh, on Taiwan. Mm. And that, that could happen. I mean, wars are unpredictable. And Putin, given his interest for history, should know that very well. So, uh, yes, it's... No, I- uh, uh, absolutely, and I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've we've seen uh, the the Russian military's inability to conduct the joint warfare uh, really played out. Um, had a major role. I mean, the lack of coordination between the various assets and the, the ground, the air, and sea based assets. Uh, I think that's certainly something that uh, many Western thinkers are. are are taking lessons from as well the importance and of course logistics. Uh, you know we've seen their tanks stranded, uh, running out of petrol. Uh, just before we pivot onto the kind of future, and I definitely want to get your thoughts on uh, on on the kind of possible scenarios. Uh, just sticking with this kind of uh, economic piece, and 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 can we hear what you think? Because some analysts are, are saying that the that the freezing of the uh, transactions uh, for the Russian central bank, uh, which is making it impossible for them to liquidate their assets. Um, given given the reserves of whatever six hundred and thirty billion or something reserves that uh, that Russia has actually uh, managed to, to kind of hoard in preparation for whatever's coming uh, over the over the over the past years, some are saying that this is actually the biggest uh, uh, danger right now uh, that these assets or the liquidation of these assets might be frozen, therefore making uh, it completely unviable uh, economically for Russia to survive. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Have you got any thoughts? I mean, given that uh, I'm not sure how strong you are economically, or I'm certainly not, but um, I'd be keen to hear if you have any thoughts on that. I'll let Wolf go on that one. It's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, this is certainly an extreme, uh, an extremely effective measure. Um, but, but with the Russians, I mean, the, the size of the Russian, um, as we call it sometimes, rainy day fund has always been very, very large and legendary. Mm. And that was actually the reason why uh, uh, Putin claimed not to be really afraid of sanctions in the short run, because he had so much money actually to (coughs) uh, counteract the the effects of any potential sanctions. Now, in how far the current sanctions actually make it impossible for Russia to access this money, I think is a question um, that is much more difficult and lies very much in the detail. That mm. uh, lies very much in the detail of of the actual makeup of this fund. I want to uh, uh, remind you that these uh, that these sanctions are not sanctions by the United Nations Security Council, where every country in the world is bound by. These are sanctions by you know by the U- European mm. Union. Um, Probably by the United States. Yeah. So they do not. Uh, they do not uh, uh, make it difficult to conduct financial transactions with Chinese banks mm. to sell something on the Chinese market, uh, to sell something on the market in Singapore, um, to conduct to uh, liquidate 
uh, positions that are held in gold on the world market. So while the assets of the Russian Central Bank may be affected, uh, will be affected, the extent to which this is the case, I think is unknown to basically anybody except you know, maybe the head of the Russian Central Bank or maybe some other very few people who knows exactly how their assets are structured around the, structured mm. around the planet. Mm. You do bring in a, an important dimension to this, and that's, of course, China. Um, and I had some notes on that as well to, to, to touch on, uh, because we do know that, uh, you know, the, the, as recent as the Olympics, uh, Xi and Putin have, uh, have you know, declared uh, a... a I forget the phrasing, but you know, a special relationship of of, of a kind uh, where nothing's off the table. Uh, but uh, and of course, China hasn't uh, is one of the few nations that hasn't uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, blamed Russia for an invasion. Um, how superficial do you see that relationship? Uh, because we do know that it's also a fragile relationship. But how superficial do you see it uh, at the moment? And do you consider that? Pseudo alliance, obviously not official one, but do you see that as a, a, a real threat going forward? Arne, why don't you go first? Okay, let's, uh, of course, I'm not not an expert on uh, on China, China, Russia, but I try to follow that as as closely as as possible. And uh, during during the Olympics, I mean, uh, the optics, of course, seen from both leaders. Uh, where that they wanted to convey a message of, of unity. So they, they do have areas of, of common interest. Of course they do. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, um, I read some pieces of Mark Galeotti uh, over time, mm-hmm. and he is quite skeptical about the substance of this, this relationship. And, and he's not the only one. Uh, we should remember that... Uh, Ukraine is actually more important when it comes to to, uh, to commerce with China than Russia is, just mm. to start. And, uh, and uh, the size of uh, what's being bought and sold uh, from uh, China to the European Union is about 10 times the size of whatever is going on between uh, China and, and, and Russia. Mm. And uh, there are some signals coming out of Beijing. I mean, even at the Munich Security Conference, uh, some of the signals where they are not that happy with what's going on because they see uh, some dark skies on uh, on the horizon that could affect also China negatively. And uh, so for sure, there will be limits to, to the support uh, Russia can expect from, uh, from China. Mm. And I also read, I think it was in Bloomberg, an estimate of this uh, pipeline of natural gas. I mean, it, it's not even close to replace what Russia is selling to Western Europe. Mm. And in addition, we are talking about something that's about a decade into the future. Yeah. If it's uh, actually going to deliver something of, of interest. And, uh, and of course, at the at the end of the day, I mean, Russia should know better than anyone that China doesn't have allies. China have vassals. Mm. Well, I mean, suzerainty is what they look at. And of course, I mean, I'm sure that there are many Kremlins that really don't want to be a vassal state 
in uh, in the relationship to China. Mm. And this board is going to make Russia look more dependent on China. No doubt about it. And that was also one of the reasons why I doubted Putin will would actually do what he has been doing. Because at the end of the day, when the dust settles, he is more, not only more, I mean much more dependent on China than he is today. And that's also a risk that I would expect him to have calculated into the equation. But didn't seem to pay attention to that. Didn't, didn't seem to stop him. Wolfgang? Um, yeah, a couple of points, a couple of points on Russia, China. Uh, first point, I think that China is watching very closely how the West reacts yeah. to, to that invasion of, uh, of, of Ukraine, because that will teach them how much actually can be done short of a full-scale military intervention. And that doesn't only include sanctions by, you know, by the European Union and by the United States governments. But that includes things such as what Facebook is doing, what Google is doing, what what uh, Twitter is doing, what Elon Musk is doing. Mm. Uh, as we said, we live in a very interconnected world. So the sanctions are no longer coming only from what the sports world is doing, excluding yeah. from you know, yeah. events, etc. I think yeah. they will be watching this uh, very closely. Mm. Um, second point, I think what we are seeing here is very much a expression of what I would call the absence of Chinese foreign policy from non-Asian topics. Um, there is no such thing as a really consistent Chinese foreign policy on topics and issues that are not within Asia or directly impact Asia. So we are seeing them really sitting on the fence on this one, trying to, you know, remain as much as possible out of it. They uh, abstained from the vote in the United Nations Security Council, condemning Russia for that. Um, they are speaking in their press conferences about things like all sides should exercise maximum restraint. Mm. Well, I wonder how you actually exercise restraint if you're being invaded. Mm. This is very difficult to, to kind of mm. imagine. So it's not a very, it, I, I think they're really taking it step by step, but they're really developing their foreign policy in a very cautious way as, as they go along. Um, third point, Arne made that point but regarding a Russia-China partnership. One thing Russia knows very well, in a Russian-Chinese uh, partnership, they may not be a vassal, but they will be the junior partner. Mm. And Russia does not want to be a junior partner with anyone. They really don't want to be a, a, a junior partner with anyone. Mm. So there are all these strategic issues that are quite, that are quite, uh, how should I say, tense, unclear, nothing really points in the direction of a great partnership of, sorry to say, makes me laugh, of values, mm. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe they may be different mm. from. <laughs> so, What Russia and China are doing now, and I think there is a, an agreement on this, they are engaging in a 100% transactional relationship. In a relationship that is a zero-sum game, if you, are, if you have something that you can do for my interest, let's do it. If, there is no, if we don't share a joint interest, we do something completely different. 100% transaction, 100% zero-sum. 
uh, demonstrated by, let us uh, quickly, let us quickly uh, uh, recall that Russia chose to transmit their, um, I will spare with an adjective, their uh, offer mm-hmm. for negotiations with Ukraine via the Chinese foreign ministry. I think that that suited everybody. The Chinese foreign ministry had a role to you know, play as a whatever intermediary on the world stage, which they also like. Russia needed somebody who does that for them. Uh, and after basically all their allies, inclu- including Kazakhstan, close ally, whom mm. they've helped me mm. just weeks ago, has yeah. made it crystal clear that they don't want to have to do anything with that Russian invasion. Um, China is, you know, China is very nicely usable for that. Mm. But the, um, the, the great Russian-Turkish alliance, um, or, the, or, or as they call it, the dragon bear, the scary dragon bear, I don't see born just yet. Um, but of course, lastly, um, it's also a challenge for the West because whether this dragon bear actually comes into existence as much uh, uh, is, is very much also a question of how the West will conduct foreign policy over the next, you know, in the next, over the next strategic period. Well, also, didn't uh, Turkey close uh, access to the Black Sea for the Russian uh, Navy fleet? Uh, which, they did it. Yeah, I, 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 I think yeah. I read that, that happened. So that that also then yeah. uh, makes that relationship uh, a lot more tense as well. Uh, uh, going the forward. Turkish one. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. With Turkey and Russia, it's also um, I know I've observed this Turkish-Russian uh, relationship for uh, really for nearly a decade. I mean, I used to live in Baku, which mm. is on the mm. you know, which is really the the mixture between the Turkic and the Russian world. Mm. Um, that's also a one hundred percent transaction relationship. And at the moment, I think Mr. Erdogan is. Um, I mean, Mr. Erdogan and Mr. Putin have had a number of excellent meetings. You know, where it suits their their joint interest. They have been you know like lockstep. And I now think Mr. Erdogan has been seeing that Russia is on the losing, Mm. in the medium term, on the losing side of this. And he may be very well advised to be with his NATO uh, partners and to be very clear that he is with his NATO partners. So that decision is a a big one. I don't know how Russia will react because that's that's really a a big decision. Mm. Um, And I wanted to bring this up, but now you have brought it up as really something to watch. What's going to go on in the in the Bosporus? Again, we'll have to see uh, more in detail what it actually means. For which ship it is closed? Yeah. Only commercial warships. What size, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What reasons are given? So, but that's something we really need to take a look at. But this is so fresh. This just happened yesterday. Yeah. I haven't really looked at it in detail yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Arne, did you want to add something? to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly agree with, uh, with Wolfgang and uh, I'm happy you brought it up because I am. Um, I think that that's an exceptional, important uh, decision. And, uh, and of course, uh, Turkey has had a problem with balancing their interest for quite some time. Mm. And uh, also that should be obvious to, to Mr. Putin that now, I mean, Turkey will have to get more into the embrace of NATO again. Mm. And uh, mm. other option would look quite the silly scene from, from Ankara. And uh, I think I was tweeting, or maybe it was on LinkedIn, I wrote um, when um, 
Putin recognized the two so-called republics in Donbass a few uh, few days ago. I mean, that that that's really a cold shower for uh, both Ankara and for for Baku. I mean, in less less than four years, uh, the uh, so-called agreement, if it is an agreement about the so-called Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh, will have to be decided again. So, uh, what happens? Yeah. Putin uh, recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as an independent state, and the uh, so-called peacekeepers turn into occupation uh, forces uh, in uh, Azerbaijan territory proper. Mm. I mean, what's what's the issue for Baku and also for for the credibility of uh, of Ankara? Mm. I mean, they're sitting in the cold rain now and thinking about that option. If if they don't do, I mean, they are not. Uh, looking into the future the way they should be from from both uh, capitals mm. i mean it yeah. seems as though this uh this action by i mean let's let's call it what it is by putin i mean he you know it, yes it's russia but it's uh it's driven by one man uh has the potential to kind of untangle a lot of these complex issues or, or at least bring them to light uh and hopefully you know, as as you both are alluding to, and we're seeing galvanize the the West, unite the West, unite NATO uh, beyond to what it has been. So, w- what do you see as the way forward? I mean, what options does Putin have? And we, do, can we agree on one? And that is that he is really unlikely because he would be well damnly suicidal. He is unlikely to uh, take the conflict beyond Ukraine into any NATO state. Would you both agree with that? For the time being, yes. Yeah. I, I would predict that he could put pressure on uh, the uh, on the states that borders uh, border mm. Russia, like uh, the Baltic, and also my own country, country Norway. Right. Uh, countries with a common border with Russia should watch out. Yeah. And okay. the discussion is already uh, going in in Norway. What are the implications for? The bilateral relationship between Nor- Norway and Russia up north. Mm. I mean, obviously, if you want to make a prediction, for sure we can say it's not going to be uh, be improved. That's mm. that can be guaranteed. The other <laughs> that's also very likely is that it will not be affected. For sure, it will be affected, and that means the only question remaining is how bad will it be, and in which way will it be bad. Mm. And that's basically where Norway is right now. Yeah, and, and so so um, what remains? Yeah, sorry, Wolfgang, jump in, please. Well, my my prediction is um, on this front. I think this is still completely open, and it will depend very much on how this adventure is going for uh, for Putin. Um, and is if, it down to Kiev? Is it down to Kiev? I mean, if he if he gets Kiev and puts a puts his own government or, or Russia friendly government in, is that the kind of immediate objective that he's looking for? I that's think that's, that's one of the kind of branches, that, I guess. That, that is the objective for sure. I mean, that's the what code uh, denazification stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do not believe this is an achievable. This is an achievable goal. I think this goal is completely unrealistic mm-hmm. because whomever Mr. Putin will put in in, in uh, charge of the government in Kiev, he will not be able to govern. Hmm. He will not. He it will certainly be a he. I guarantee yeah. you this. Yes. He will not be able to govern because the population will be 
in complete resistance. Mm. Kiev is a city that's very used to protests. It's probably the most protest-prone city in the world mm. uh, these days. Mm. So there will be millions and millions of people out in the streets on a daily basis. And not backed one, by the world, by, backed by the entire world. backed by the world, receiving intelligence by the world, receiving economic support by the world. So I think this is an unachievable and unachievable goal. Mm -hmm. I believe that this will, this may uh, be sinking in also, uh, again, at some point in, in Russia, um, and that they will probably be looking for an exit scenario. And I think that um, some kind of exit scenario may come, but it, it, it really depends on the psychology of one man yeah. who has not, let's say, improved in decision-making, yeah. whose decision-making has really, really, really degraded over the mm. past you know, months. And that's the scary part, I guess, because the rational thing would be to, to, to try and seek negotiations uh, mediation, yeah. because there was even whispers of that, or first meeting in Minsk, then Warsaw. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's kind of fallen off the table, even though both sides still claim that they want to pursue uh, negotiations. Uh, but we don't, we don't hear uh, any more of it. Uh, yeah. So that's the that that's that will be the rational thing to do. But as we've seen, he's uh, he's no longer uh, a rational actor. Uh, are there any yeah. thoughts? No, no, and, I mean, and one oh, sorry on that. One sentence. This decision that Putin has taken now is such a departure from foreign policy decisions he has taken in the past. I mean, we all agree on the illegality and on the immorality of um, what he has done in Crimea, what mm. he has done in the Donbass, what he has done in Syria. We all have what he has done in Chechnya. I mean, we all agree that these were horrible things to do. But the difference is they were executed in a very smart way. And he won all these games. They were executed in a smart, uh, analyzable, and uh, rational, darkly rational way. I believe this incursion into Ukraine is done in a very criminally stupid way. Emotion, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And and uh, with what you say, well, for now is the reason why I didn't expect this this to happen. For sure, I expected Putin to carry on some kind of political warfare, war by proxies, and all that we know very well that has been going on. But uh, I considered him to be a more careful player than this. And your description of this decision is actually. What surprises me, me a lot that he made that decision. So uh, and now, of course, we are into a, a completely, a completely different, different world. And um, um, Putin should know better than most other that quite often uh, after the Second World War, military power has not been able to deliver the political results that leaders have been uh, wishing for or trying to achieve. Even uh, if the power of the U.S has turned out not to be, be enough. Mm. And, uh, and I do agree with Wolfgang about the scenario that uh, a Russian-friendly government in Kiev could govern anything. They, they could govern within areas mm. occupied by Russian forces. Mm. But as I alluded to uh, some minutes ago, um, today, 
that's just a tiny fraction mm. of uh, Ukrainian territory. And it will be a tiny fraction of If you go back in history, in Norway, my own country, in 1940, we had uh, about 3 million uh, people. At the most, Nazi Germany had almost 400,000 occupation troops in Norway to keep it kind of calm. But still, sabotage happened. Mm. And and, uh, when the Soviet Union, Russia, entered into Czechoslovakia in uh, 1968, the first wave was 250,000. Uh, and that was against a small country with uh, 14 million people. And in the weeks following up to that, another 250,000 came in. Mm. And they were not even making resistance. And still you need in this amount of troops to control the area. Mm. So, uh, so this idea, I think, that uh, Mr. Putin entertains that he can, in a way, get... Ukraine, as it looks today, to fall under the influence of, uh, of Russia by having a friendly government in Kiev is complete madness. Mm. Uh, uh, at the worst, this could look like Syria after some time. Uh, areas, yeah. different areas are under control of, uh, I mean, the, the, the capital is just controlling a fraction of the country. Mm. The rest of the will be uh, either under uh, government uh, will be governed by uh, the present government the legally um, legal authorities of Ukraine from some other place in uh, in the West mm-hmm. that could be a possible scenario and uh, I had a quick estimate yesterday about the possibilities for um, Ukrainian insurgency if that is going to be going on for a long time. Mm. NATO countries have about 140, uh, 1,400 kilometers of common border with with Russia. Mm. And uh, one of the main absolutely important criteria for an insurgency is a safe place to return to. And Mm. that would be the country. And it would be impossible to, I mean, prevent forces to trickle in both uh, direction over this uh, this uh, border to NATO. And also Belarus should remember that they have a long uh, common border with Poland. And uh, Belarus has actually entered the war now by allowing cruise missiles to be fired from their territory. I got a WhatsApp message from uh, from Kiev about that just a few minutes ago. So, so, uh, so here we are looking into something that will be most likely very messy and very difficult. And uh, this kind of clean uh, fall of Ukraine under the influence, I mean, whole of Ukraine as it is now, under the influence of Moscow is is really uh, very, very unlikely to happen. So uh, uh, he's in for uh, some difficult times. Well, let's hope he takes the option that's available to him. And I mean, and I mean, if I do recall, and I, things might have changed, but Zelensky did express that, uh, and US supported it, uh, that Ukraine can choose the uh, non-aligned option. Uh, uh, you know, that was in the lead up to the supposed negotiations. I mean, that would still be that certainly, if that is still an option uh, to end the fighting now, uh, then that is something that Putin uh, still. Can consider. Uh, uh, you're shaking your head, uh, Wolfgang. You, what's your thoughts? 
my thought on this is that the neutral option, and I, I know that my Ukrainian friends have criticized me for, you know, a decade for this. Mm. Uh, um, I've always thought that the neutral option for Ukraine would be a viable one, would be one that should be considered. Um, I think this is now off the table. Yeah. I think after yeah. what happened now, uh, non-aligned or neutrality is simply not an yeah. option anymore. Well, I guess that, that and and maybe bringing it to the end as well, just to the last couple of thoughts maybe, because that, that brings up a point and there's been a, a, a quite a few calls, uh, even from some leaders. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, I did see the, uh, wasn't it uh, Andre Duda that actually uh, supported it as well publicly on Twitter, uh, the Poland uh, uh, president, Polish president, uh, to expedite admission into the European Union. Um, of uh, Ukraine. Do you think that uh, is pouring fuel on the fire right now, given what's happening? I mean, the, the, the bombs are going off and people are dying? Well, if, if I may answer that, I think, um, unfortunately, uh, this uh, and, and, and integration into the European Union is, 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 is not possible for matters that have nothing to do with the war. Um, uh, it has to do, I mean, the European Union is not like NATO, where you can be for, let's say, political or or for political or um, uh, you know reasons for to demonstrate something mm, to, mm, to others, the European Union means deep economic integration. Mm. Uh, in and in terms of deep economic integration, the EU is currently not even uh, able to to uh, you know get through the accession of Montenegro and North Macedonia. Mm with, uh, you know, 800,000, 1 million people. Yeah. So I think a full EU membership of of of, 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 of Ukraine is is just not really, mm. is not a realistic thing that's yeah. being, that, that looks, does not look like a realistic thing at the moment. Yet, I will make a caveat uh, again with Arne, who said war makes things possible that we never thought were possible. So who knows? Yeah. Arne, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I uh, the uh, the uh, Wolfgang and myself we are very much aligned <laughs> along uh, this this thinking about about Ukraine. Let, let me briefly return to uh, to uh, this uh, neutral, non-aligned uh, kind of thing. Uh, then that that's probably the area where I've been slightly more pessimistic than Wolfgang uh, expressed and. And uh, I, I don't think that Putin could live with a neutral and non-aligned, prosperous Ukraine anyway, because mm. that's a model that uh, Russia would look to. And uh, I, so I don't think that's an option. And if if Ukraine should be non-aligned and neutral, it also would mean that Putin couldn't influence it, couldn't have any right. Uh, so, uh, so uh, I would be kind of pessimistic, and, and now I for sure agree with Wolfgang. That's that's definitely down the drain, uh, no doubt about that. Mm. And but also, if we look back, uh, we should remember that uh, in 2010, after Yanukovych was elected in Kiev, it was entered again into the Ukrainian constitution, non-alignment and and being neutral, and uh, I was in uh, senior positions in NATO over six years during this, uh, these times. And I mean, uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO was a joke. Nobody could even mm. imagine that possibility. 
and uh, and uh, the percentage in Ukraine that would support it was far below 30%. Mm. Today, it's more than 60 so uh, and that that's because of of uh, Russia's policy to, towards uh, towards Ukraine and uh, in 2014 Russia actually attacked and annexed Crimea and attacked the Donbas uh, area and back then Ukraine when that happened was neutral and non-aligned mm. in the constitution it was changed the constitution was changed in uh, December 2014 mm. uh, Back to, and of course, it was reinforced again in 2019 about uh, the Western orientation of, uh, of Ukraine. And that's part of my reason why I also didn't believe Putin would do something this stupid as he's doing now. He knew that Ukraine, as Wolfgang rightfully pointed out, the membership was not on the table. It was nothing in NATO or, or in the European Union. And nobody could even imagine that possibility. And nobody could even imagine the possibility that NATO would deploy troops to Ukraine or missiles or, or whatever. Hmm. That was really not, even in the in fantasies of people, it, that didn't. So basically, he had things the way he, he should like to have it. Hmm. But obviously, it was not enough. Well, that's a rather dark way to end it, but I guess it's reflective of the uh, of the reality on the ground and the fact that, um, yeah, that, that that doesn't leave too many more options apart from the one that I think you pointed out, Wolfgang, as uh, as uh, a fear of yours that we've got some much darker days ahead. And of course, you've alluded to it from the military perspective of the firepower uh, as well, Agnes. So I think um, uh, if that's uh, if I'm if I'm reading between the lines of what you're both saying, or not in between the lines, what you're both saying is that uh, it's about to get a lot uglier uh, rather than better uh, in the near term. Uh, any final thoughts, gentlemen? I'm uh, conscious how much time you've given me, but any uh, any final thoughts? Well, br- briefly, uh, I think that uh, we're pretty sure we'll see a withdrawal of the Ukrainian forces from from Donbas. Because they have been holding in the line uh, in the areas of the of the line of contact uh, so far, and uh, in from my military perspective, there is no reason to keep such a huge bulk of the forces in that area, and also they could end up being encircled from the north and from uh, from the south. south well, yeah. so, uh, I would expect that to be uh, a decision that is discussed in the general staff in Kiev as we as we speak, uh, and of course it must have been planned to uh, how uh, to uh, withdraw those uh, very potent uh, forces and uh, to shorten and straightening uh, the front line so that you are not encircled from the north and from the south because those forces are uh, the better part of the Ukrainian armed forces and. They will for sure be needed in other places and also in areas of higher priority than being located along the line of that I think ends my deliberate and battle-hardened forces too. Uh, Wolfgang, any closing uh, remarks? Well, I would like to close with uh, two um, anecdotes and stories that are just, you know, from the past days and maybe not so much on on the darkest of terms, but that gives you maybe a little bit of hope. Um, yesterday, I was sitting outside in Brussels um, uh, in, in, on, on Place Saint-Catherine, and uh, there was a large group of Russian speakers uh, on the next table. And um, so I was kind of 
eavesdropping a little bit. <laughs> and uh, soon it became clear it's a group of both Russians and Ukrainians. There were Russians and Ukrainians uh, sitting together, obviously friends, discussing the situation, uh, what's going on, all very concerned. And everybody was, I think, a majority of Russians and two or three Ukrainians, in total, like eight people. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was of the opinion that Putin has gone mad and that what he's doing is an absolute, is an absolute crime. And, mm-hmm. and, and so there is, there continues to be no inter-ethnic element in this fight, in a big mm-hmm. departure from what we've seen in the Yugoslav war. So eh, there is no inter-ethnic element here and there continues not to be, and that's a good thing. And the second thing, I would like to read to you a uh, message I just received during this uh, podcast from a friend in uh, Moscow um, who is a very prominent person. So I will not uh, mention his name. Um, so he says, hi, Wolfgang. We talked about you know messaging from abroad to support civil society, mm-hmm. etc." He says, it's hard to say what messaging from abroad could help at this point. This was started by Russia and we'll have to sort it out as well as face the consequences. I really hope anti-war voices will grow. This is pure madness. And I think I couldn't say it better than my Moscow friend. My thoughts are with my friends, both in Moscow and in Ukraine. Let's hope for the best. On that note, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time once again. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.